0: This is episode 584 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As we've discussed, the keys that open up for us, not only salvation, but also the blessed life of holiness or sanctification, are found in two key words. One is faith, and the second is repentance. Faith we've looked at previously, but repentance, ah oh, well, that's something altogether different for each of us. Which leads to a couple of questions, like, what does real repentance look like? In fact, what does repentance even mean in both the Old and New Testament? And more importantly, is there a place in Scripture where we can clearly see the type of repentance God honors and the repentance that will allow us to experience His presence in our lives? Well, the answer to the most important question is yes, and the place in Scripture we turn to is Psalm 51. So join us today as we unpack this psalm and look at 10 aspects of true repentance found in the anguished prayer of David, the type of repentance that is sure to get God's attention as we strive to apply these truths into our life and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. All right, so we're in Psalm 51. I sent an email out this week, uh, just a couple days ago, about repentance. Uh, There'll be another one that'll be coming out tonight that will kind of follow up on repentance. And the reason why is because last week we talked about these three key words, remember, uh, repent, and return, and we basically took it from uh, Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus, which was the church that experienced Christ, the church of the Apostle Paul and his missionary journeys, the church that faced the persecution of Nero and others. The, um, you know There's some eyewitness accounts to what happened. When that church age ended, about A.D. 100, John may have been even alive at that time. And so it, uh, it was a church that had firsthand knowledge of Christ, and yet the Lord said this, he said, nevertheless, of all the hard work you're doing, the fact that you cannot tolerate men who think they're apostles but are not, your doctrine's correct, you're evangelizing, you're getting the organization, uh, organization of the church together, you've, all you guys who got seminary degrees and you're on these building programs, and everything looks really good. But I have this one thing against you, and that is that you have left your first love. You have abandoned, forsaken, and walked away from me what you have done is you've substituted your devotion for me for the devotion of the church or the christian life or being a christian or your particular ministry and you've substituted the best which is christ for something that's good which is ministry or church or something of that nature and so therefore because of that i'm giving you some instructions of what you need to do number 1 you must remember you must remember what it was like when you were on fire just for me, what it was like when you loved me more than anything. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Number two, recognize that's a sin. It's not just, well, it's the way life is right now. I used to be a 10. Now I, Well, then I was a 6, but now I'm an 8, so we're okay. We're not okay. Repent of that. And then do the first works, or the word that I put in there to keep the R's together, is just return. Return and do the things that you did when you were on fire for me. Justice pointed out a simple example in his life, which is not so simple with young kids, is that instead of getting up at dawn, you get up at dawn minus 60 minutes, you know, and because that's what worked for him, and he's testified today that it seems to be working now. So, Remember, therefore, you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Really, three R's. Remember, repent, and return. But then we read, and it says, "Or else, oh wow, there's a there's a threat, or God would call it a promise associated with this. If you don't do this, I will come to you quickly, quickly, and remove your lampstand from its place." That's back from Revelation chapter one. Unless you, uh oh number two again, repent. So in this passage, we have remember once, we have repent twice, which is the operative word here, and return once. And so the key is, what does repentance really mean? I know what I was taught repentance means. Uh, I was taught that repentance means you know, having a change of mind or, or changing direction and, you know, asking God to forgive you for the consequences of what you've done or, or your sins. And it was, like a, it was like a verbal mental thing that we, we repent and then we go on and do exactly the same stuff we've been doing. And then we get caught or convicted, then we repent. And, and you, so when you look at the scripture, you're wondering, is, is that really what repentance means, biblical repentance, or is it something else? And so Today, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take Psalm 51, and we're just going to look at 10. And I'm going to go through these quickly. You actually have a handout so that when I go through them quickly, you don't have to necessarily write them down. The verses are there. You can, uh, you can look them up yourself when you get home. Then I'm we're going to look at 10 aspects of biblical repentance. And then I'm going to ask you to compare your life and your time of repentance to the Lord and see how it measures up with what David said in Psalm 51. First to set the scene, you know David. David, of course, comes to the scene with Uh, He's anointed king, and he's a young man, and all of a sudden he sees Goliath, and you know the story. He's shocked that these soldiers are are quaking, and he comes to Goliath, runs to Goliath with nothing more than a sling, which is something he felt comfortable with, because Goliath had the audacity to defy and defame the name of his God, and that wasn't going to stand. And then all of a sudden there's the conflict between David and Saul, and so he goes into hiding, and even when Saul's trying to take his life, David still responds with, um, with integrity. He had an opportunity to kill Saul and didn't. Then he's king now. And when he should be out with his uh, it's a defining moment in David's life, when he should be out with his soldiers and in war, instead he's hanging around the top of the, uh, his palace and he looks over and he sees this woman Bathsheba and he's drawn to her and he goes in and has a, a an illicit affair with Bathsheba knowing that That she's married to one of his 30 mighty men. One of the men that is out on the battlefield where David should be, that has sworn allegiance to him, was someone that he knew named Uriah. And so, since Bathsheba all of a sudden is pregnant now, and David realizes there's a consequence to his sin, I can't get caught at this, what I'll do is I'll bring Uriah in, I'll have Uriah go spend time with his wife, and then when the baby's born or she finds out she's pregnant, everybody will think it's Uriah's kid and not mine. But Uriah had so much integrity that he refused to go into his wife and spend the night with her because he said, how in the world can I go spend uh, in my house with my wife when my comrades are out on the, uh, on the battlefield working real hard and fighting and putting their life on the line? I will not do it. And he just stayed by David the whole time. And so David then uh, gave him instructions of his own demise, told him to go give him to Joab. Joab read it, realized it was a murder plot for Uriah. They went up to the walls, and all the men pulled back. Uriah was killed, and he then took this grieving Bathsheba into his uh, into his family, and he thought his sin was covered until this prophet named Nathan showed up one day. You remember the story? Nathan tells a story about this man who had just one little lamb that he loved more than anything, and, and the king, of course, and the rich man had all these lambs. It meant nothing to him. And he actually took that man's lamb and slaughtered it to feed his own friends. And David was incensed. The man who did that should pay back fourfold. And then Nathan, God always finds out, Nathan pointed his bony little finger in David's chest and said, you are the man. David was broken. There was a consequence for a sin. And because of David's sin, that son that was born to him to Bathsheba died. David was overwhelmed with grief because of that. And then when you look at David's relationship with all of this, we still see that with all these sins, which publicly are probably greater than our sins, I don't know if you've killed anybody like David did with Uriah, but the fact of the matter is God still called him a man after his own heart. God still followed his promises through David God is still reveres David, even with this kind of sin. And the question is, why? And we find the answer to that in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, David has this prayer of anguish. And so I'm, um, I'm not going to go through this Psalm verse by verse. I am going to point out a few key things, but I do want to read it to you And so that you can see the totality of these 19 verses before we begin looking at these key things, these 10 key things that you, if you will incorporate into your life, it will, That sounds tacky to say this, it will empower your repentance to actually let you experience the forgiveness and the restoration of your fellowship with God. Let me just read this. You can follow along in your Bibles so that you'll understand the context. To the chief musician, a Psalm of David, when? When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So we know exactly when David wrote this Psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden parts you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. And then the verse we all know, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. My prayer, to restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, You will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offerings and the whole burnt offering. Then they shall offer bulls on your altar. We're familiar with this? So we're going to look at 10 aspects of this to uh, help us develop a mindset or be spiritually prepared to have an intimate, close relationship with God, to have our spirits renewed by Him. Because quite honestly, if you've been a Christian for long, nothing in life is more important than that. Nothing. So let's look at these. Number one, what can we learn about true repentance from this? It was nobody's fault but David. He owned up to his sin and he made no excuses. It wasn't my brother's fault, my family's fault, it wasn't the way I was raised, it wasn't Bathsheba's fault, it wasn't Uriah's fault, it wasn't your fault, God, it was my fault. Psalm 51 verse 3, for I acknowledge my transgressions, I, my, and my sin is always before me. In this sentence, you've got four indications that David took it personal. For I acknowledge, that word is yada in the Greek, in the, I mean, in the um, Hebrew. In Greek, the word would be gnosko. In other words, I have experienced, I know experientially my transgressions. They're on me. They're before me. I've done this. I, I acknowledge that I did this. And my sin, I think this is amazing. You know, he didn't talk about the multiple sins. Well, there was Bathsheba, and then I lied to my friends and family, and then I lost my testimony with Job, and then I killed Uriah. It wasn't sins. David noticed in this situation, he was taking responsibility for singular sin, which was doing a contrary to what God wanted him to do. And it was nobody's excuse but him. In our narcissistic society, One of the things we do is that when we're caught in an infraction or something happens our way or we're accused of something that we're guilty of, it's always somebody else's fault. We always pitch it to somebody else and try to divert the issue, not David. I Acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. It's always present. I think about it all the time. Number one, you have to own your own sin. When you repent and you say, God, I'm so sorry for, for the fact that I lost my temper and cussed out my neighbor. But the fact is, you know, it's, her, it's his fault or her fault because they shouldn't have parked their car there. I had a really bad day at work. And if I got to a raise like I wanted to, I wouldn't be like this. Or I had some you know, ex-wife or ex-husband who made me like this, or I've always heard this, is just inside of me, and I can't stop it, and it just comes out, and that's the way it is. In other words, I'm not responsible for my sin. Someone else is. And if you have that mindset, you'll never experience the joy of true repentance and forgiveness, because you've never confessed exactly what the issue is. It's you and him and a severed relationship because of something not he did or other people did because of something that we did. That's one. Number two, what David did is he understood, since the sin was singular, he understood exactly who he sinned against. He may have sinned against his brother or sister or or Uriah, but ultimately he sinned against God against God's holiness. We see this in Psalm 51, verse 4, the first part of that. Against you, and you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Verse prior to that, David talks about, I acknowledge my sin and I'm guilty, and now my sin is against you and only you. Not just Uriah. Not just Bathsheba, not just my child who just died, but against you I have sinned. Therefore, I am bringing my repentance to you. And when you stop justifying your sins and stop realizing it's someone else's fault, and then you realize that your sin is against God Himself, and you're sitting there asking Him for forgiveness, it literally changes everything. You're no longer hiding behind self justification well, you know what? Everybody else is doing it, and I did it too, so hey, I'm just as bad as everybody else, and everybody's just as bad as me. That's just the way it is. It doesn't work that way with God. Against you and you only have I sinned, and I'll recognize it for what it is. I have done evil, evil in the sight of a holy God who gave his son to die for my sins. Repentance does not take place. You'll feel better But repentance does not take place until you acknowledge your sin and realize who you sinned against. Which brings us to number three. Repentance doesn't come from arrogance. Repentance doesn't come from self-justification. Repentance comes from humility. It comes from a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Is repentance emotional? It doesn't have to be, but it usually is. Because you have hurt someone immensely. And the person that you've hurt is the one that loves you the most. And when you have this humble spirit, not justifying it and saying, well, you know, it's their fault and not my fault, but you have this broken spirit and a contrite or crushed heart, when you come to someone Begging for their forgiveness and the restoration of the relationship, especially if that person is God, everything changes. God answers that kind of prayer. The sacrifices of God are not rams and bulls and you getting up earlier in the morning to read your Bible or praying or tithing 15% or all those things and aren't bad. That's not what God does to have uh, to atone for your sins. The sacrifices of God, He says in verse seventeen, are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite or crushed heart, crushed heart. God, I, I just I, I'm. I'm ashamed, I'm shocked, I'm overwhelmed, my sin is always before me, I can't believe I've done this, I can't believe I've crushed my wife this way, or my children, or or my friends, and my neighbors, or you, that I've committed these things, and God, it's, it's just, it's breaking my heart, it's overwhelming me, overwhelming me with sorrow, God, please, please take this away from me. By the way, does this sound like um, how you repent of your sins when you get together with God? Or do you say things like, hey, you know what? Um, I I shouldn't have said that today. I'm really sorry. Will you forgive me? Okay, well, let's move on to my request since I've already asked for forgiveness. Or are you anguishing over what you've done? Do you love him so much that the thought of you offending or crushing him just, just breaks your heart? there's no pride there anymore. There's no self-sufficiency. There's no more, I'm right and he's wrong, or or it's their fault. There's just, I have done this, and I beg your forgiveness. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and crushed heart. And of these, these sacrifices, broken spirit, broken, crushed heart, God will not Despise, man, that's a tough word. You know, could have said that God will freely accept. Instead, it's almost like, no, the sacrifices that we bring to him, he despises because of our attitude, but he won't despise this one if we come to him with the right heart. You notice the difference here? Could have said it differently, but he chose to use these words. This is what we find in Psalm 51 when we're dealing with David. It's a whole lot more than what my brother and I used to say all the time when we got caught with something. Hey, my bad. Sorry. Only we used to say it. Sorry. And supposedly that resolved everything. Supposedly, oh, okay. Everything's fine now because you said, my bad. You know, that's a real broken and contrite thing. And it's throughout this casual sorry, and that's it and then you go out and do the very same thing later on that day, or tomorrow, the next day, irrespective of the pain and suffering and broken bodies that are in your wake? Number three, true repentance comes from a broken spirit. Looking at this psalm, and I suggest you study it on your own, it brings us to number four. Fourth element, repentance comes when we see forgiveness and renewal or restoration from the one we have offended. Think that through. If I did something terrible to Karen, and she was crushed because of my actions, and I came to her and I asked for her forgiveness, she either will forgive me or she won't forgive me. I can't control that. She either, maybe she says she forgives me or really doesn't. I can't necessarily have that relationship restored by the words that I say because her free will and her ability to receive my forgiveness is on play on the other side. But when I come to God, who I have primarily offended, and I ask for forgiveness, and I do it in a way that he doesn't despise by exalting my rights and justification first rather than broken and humble coming and begging for his forgiveness, then. He will forgive me and do the greatest thing ever is restore that relationship. You know, there's no longer that sin standing between me and God. It's now gone, and he and I can have fellowship like we used to. The most famous passage in Psalm 51, at least for me. And I I want you to notice as we look at this that there's an implied you here. David is not saying, I will do this for you. I will create in me a clean heart, and I'll renew my spirit to be steadfast and loyal to you. I can't. I've recognized by having a broken spirit and a crushed heart that I'm incapable of giving you what you need. The only thing good in me is your spirit, and so I'm begging you, God, you create in me a clean pure, righteous heart, you, O oh God, and you, you, not me. This is the depth of the humility. You renew. In other words, again, to use this metric, I promised I wouldn't use anymore. In other words, I, I was a six. I know what it's like to be a 10. So bring me back to at least where I used to be. Renew something that I used to have. Doesn't say create in me a clean heart, and create in me a steadfast spirit. It says, give me that clean heart and then renew again this steadfast spirit within me, this spirit that gives me the ability and the desire to persevere in righteousness and not offend you any more. This is one of the reasons why David, in the midst of his sin, after his confession, that uh, God still had him pay consequences for those sins, but the fact is that God still called him a man after his own heart, and David is still revered highly because of his depth of his repentance. God, I don't want to be this way anymore. I don't want to make excuses for my behavior like I've always been that way. It's just the way it's coming. No, Lord, renew in me a, a faithful spirit and so not sin anymore, not fall away like I did, and, and Lord, I can't do it with my heart take my heart away, and you create in me something I've never had before, a pure, innocent, righteous heart that seeks after you. This is the kind of repentance that gets God's attention. Which brings us to number five. What else did David do? He recognized that repentance is not just verbal or mental, or even emotional, repentance demands a commitment to change. If I have a heart and a spirit that's going the way it's going, and because of it I committed some horrible sin out there against God and others, and I've asked God to recreate my heart into something new and to renew a steadfast spirit in me, that it means that I will no longer be doing the things that I once did with my sinful heart that needed repenting, but instead as a new, fresh, innocent, empowered believer, that I would do the things that I should have been doing. I will remember, I'll repent, and then I will return to what brought me my deepest intimacy with you in the first place. Exactly what David says in verse 13. After my forgiveness, after God has heard my cry and heard my prayer and changed my life, after I'm on a great relationship with Him, then my whole life changes. Then I will teach transgressors your way. Wait, wait, wait a second. Aren't you a transgressor, David? Aren't your sins greater than everybody else's you're talking to, David? I mean, you're a king, and he gave you all these things, and you had your friend murdered and took his wife and a baby died, and, and, and really? Yes, but I've been freed. I've been redeemed. God's given me a new heart and a new. and I want to show you how you can be like I am now and not like I was before. I was a transgressor and God has shown me his ways. And so now I'm going to take the boldness that I have for my true forgiveness and I'm going to teach you his ways. And when I do, God, sinners will be converted to you. Every time we face a situation where it brings us to our knees that we have to repent and confess our sins, If you will allow him, God will turn those darkest moments in your life into your brightest ministry because you've been there. You know what it's like. You have suffered and persevered and been forgiven and moved on, and it's the greatest testimony ever of once I was blind and now I see, and that can be yours after repentance and true forgiveness takes place because true repentance always demands a commitment to change. You know, if we think that uh, forgiveness and repentance is nothing more than some sort of mental state, then we're missing it. It's uh, remember, repent, and then do. Do, return. It's, It's an action that's involved. Because repentance and restoration are really a new beginning of the rest of your life. And we can become at that point more like God created us to be in the very beginning. Anything less than that is not the repentance that's modeled in Psalm 51 by David. Number six on what basis are we forgiven? Well, it's certainly not on your merits and your rights. It's actually on God's mercy and loving kindness, and his mercy and loving kindness are greater than even your worst sin. I used to think that um, my sins were so bad that God would forgive everybody else but never forgive me, which is just pride, if you think about it. So since he's never going to forgive me, then I'm not even going to try. I mean, it's nothing but pride. That in itself is a sin because what it's doing is defaming the character of God. God can't change me. I've been this way my whole life so that God's not sovereign. No, it's, it's just me, my arrogance. What is the basis of our forgiveness? It's his mercy and his long-suffering and his loving kindness. Look what it says in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to what? My Righteousness my election, my merit, the money that I make, the sins that I don't commit, how cool I think I am. No, it's according to your loving kindness, that you love me that much that you would show mercy upon me, even someone who feels their sin is this bad. According to the multitudes of your tender mercies. And God, according to who you are, not according to who I am, would you please blot out my transgressions? We're not going to get into it today, but that imagery of blotting out, covering it so that you can't even see it, it's like drenching it with the blood of Christ. It's the wonderful picture of salvation and restoration. Number six, repentance means trusting in God's mercy and loving kindness, no matter how bad your sin is. So don't sit here and not pray to him because, well, he'll never forgive me my sins because it's really so bad. No, that's you. You not forgiving yourself for what God has already forgiven you of. Which brings us to number seven and the rest of these. So what happens when we're forgiven? What can we learn from Psalm 51 and this Psalm of David? How he responded to God after he prayed for repentance and after he knew God forgave him. Number seven is he didn't wallow around in guilt and shame anymore. You know, I've asked the Lord to forgive me and I've repented of my sins, but I haven't forgiven myself. And oh, what a wretched man that I am. And I'm just running around with a sad look on my face because I'm telling everybody that Jesus will forgive all your sins, come to him, but he can't forgive mine. Or even if he can forgive mine, I haven't forgiven me of mine, which means my standard of righteousness is higher than Christ. So I'm right and he's wrong. Really? That's a sin in and of itself. It's an ultimate pride. Look what he said here. God, now that you have forgiven me, now that I have a right relationship with you, here's what I want. I want you to restore, bring back to me the joy that I once had in you. Bring back to me the joy of your salvation. I think that's amazing. Well, what joy are we talking about here? Is that the joy of us having salvation God provided Or are we experiencing the joy that God had in the salvation he's provided for us? Either one, it's a powerful, amazing thing. And so since I'm forgiven, God, I'm not going to wallow around in guilt and shame and self-flagellation anymore. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. You do that, God, and you will uphold me. You'll sustain me. You'll help me be steadfast by your generous Holy Spirit who lives in me. Give me more of you. Give me more of the Holy Spirit. God, I want to tell the world about what a wonderful God you are because of what I have experienced in my own life. Again, does this sound like the type of experiences that you've had when you've been convicted of sin and you've asked the Lord to forgive you? Or are they kind of stoic? and mental, and just we pray, and then we just hold on to the sovereignty of God, and I know in my mind I'm forgiven, but I don't really feel it in the rest of me, and so therefore I walk around with this burden on my shoulder, and it doesn't have to be that way. Number eight, three more. What else happens, David, once you're forgiven, once God has granted that to you? Well, it's really simple. Then once I'm forgiven, my whole life is changed, And my life needs to impact others who also need forgiveness. I have experienced something from God. And that experiencing something from him has literally changed my present and changed my future. And so therefore, if that's true, what I want to do is I want to tell other people about this wonderful grace that comes from you. I mean, if you go home and you ask the Lord to forgive you, and he does forgive you, and he washes the slate clean, and he blots out your transgression, and he chooses to remember them no more, and he cast your iniquities as far from him as the east is from the west, not north and south, where you have poles, but infinitely. East and west, you don't think when you get together with your family and friends and other believers, that you would have a compulsion to tell him, "I've been forgiven." I struggled with this for years, and finally i have forgiven. him. God has taken it away from me, and I want to tell you and the world that you don't have to live even as a believer like I've lived for so long, but you can embrace the newness that comes from him. Verse 14 and 15. God, would you deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, Oh God, you, the God of my salvation. God, and when you do Deliver me from murder. That's a pretty serious sin. Then my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, would you open my lips? And when you do, my mouth shall show forth your praise. The people who praise him the most are the people that have experienced his forgiveness. You know, those that have been forgiven little love little. And those who have been forgiven much should love much. And one of the reasons why, whether we have been forgiven little or forgiven much, that we have a tendency of loving little, is because we've never experienced what that forgiveness really entails. And David lays it all out for us in Psalm 51. Number nine, two more. Now that I'm forgiven, what else can I learn, God? from this prayer of David. I don't want to sin anymore. And the only way I cannot sin anymore is if I can understand God's truth and God's wisdom and they became more important to me than just my carnal actions or what feels good or the rights that I think I have to tell people what I think. We should desire his truth and wisdom in all things. Look what he says here in verse 6. Behold, God you, you desire truth. now note this: not mentally, not doctrinally, not theologically, not academically, but you desire truth here, in the inward parts, in the parts that no one can see, in my soul, in my heart, in my suke. you desire the truth there, and in the hidden parts the parts that no one even knows where they're at of my being, you will make me to know yada or gnosko wisdom. I will become a receptacle of your truth and your wisdom. So therefore, every time I'm confronted with the same problems that led me astray before, someone maligns me, someone slaps me on the one one cheek, rather than laying them out like my flesh wants to, I understand the truth, I have your wisdom, and now I'm able to turn the other cheek to forgive those people who offend me. uh, How many times should we do that? Like seven times? No. Like seven times seven times. Seventy times. Seventy times. So what does that mean? Well, let me give you another psalm that will make this a little clearer for you. If it says your word I have hidden where in my inward being I have taken your word that is full of your truth and your wisdom and I have incorporated it into my life and I've hidden it in my heart. And because it's in my heart and it's closer to me than my flesh, then whenever I'm confronted with something that I have to make a choice, that I fall back on that which is hidden in me, your truth in your wisdom in my heart, so that I won't sin, not against them, but ultimately against you. That's what he means by that passage. You desire truth in the inward parts. You've hidden deep inside of you the very wisdom of God. He will make that known to you, the psalm says, if you ask him and beg him for that. Which brings us to the last one. There are more, but we limited it to 10 today. The last one. Lord, what else can I learn about repentance from... uh, this obvious psalm of repentance that's given to us to show us exactly the kind of repentance that you accept. When that happens, you should experience the joy of full restoration. And there's that word experience again. Baptists are people who have been in church for a whole long time. They're not used to experiencing anything. And if you decide you don't want to you know, come to a Baptist church. You want to experience more. So you go to Assembly of God or Church of God or something of that nature. And there's a lot of gymnastics and more pumped up music and people, you know, trying to feel something kinetically. We're not even talking about that. We're talking about this deep seated peace or joy or love or grace that just overwhelms you when you realize what God has done for your life. And it's an experience with him that changes everything it's not a mental understanding. It's an experience. I I experience his sovereignty. I experience the peace because of his sovereignty that passes all understanding. I experienced being separated from him, and I experienced being restored to him. And the joy of being restored is something I have to tell you and everyone about. I went so much of my life just limping along with a mental understanding and not experiencing the joy it talks about. But then when I repented his way, humbled myself, broken, God, you're king, whatever you want to do is fine. Then when I experienced that restoration, like I've never had before, it just changed everything that I am. It's an experience. Here's what he says in verse eight, God I need you to restore my relationship and help me have that experience. You, God, will you make me hear joy and gladness? Because the bones that you have broken, the conviction, the being contrite, the the pain that I have suffered because of my sin and my separation from you, that I actually I actually have been satisfied as a spiritual five, knowing what it's like to be a 10, but I've been satisfied to be something less than that for a decade because I didn't care enough about it, that experience to to want to embrace you, or I was just comfortable living in the bones that you've crushed, this chastisement, this pulling away of your presence, knowing you're only doing that because you want me to restore that relationship. So, Lord, will you now, after my forgiveness, make me hear joy and gladness that these very bones that you have broken, bringing me to this point, may rejoice rejoice. And then, Lord, I want to tell other people about this amazing forgiveness that comes from true repentance. If you repent his way, you are guaranteed forgiveness. You're also guaranteed sanctification in 1 John 1.9. But if you shortcut it, yes, you know, God has forgiven my sins. I understand that theologically. Okay. I agree too but you'll never experience the joy of that. You'll never experience what it means to have a full resolved relationship with him. And you'll end up being bitter and cantankerous. And you're like one of those people that don't finish their Christian life well. And you can by just embracing the joy of repenting his way. So question I have for you. How long has it been, or if ever, have you repented of your sins this way? Doesn't matter whether they're big sins or little sins. Doesn't matter whether you're still suffering the consequences of those sins. That you come to him and you've asked him for forgiveness and you've asked him for for help and you've recognized that you've sinned against him and you're broken by it and you've asked him to restore your relationship, and you, you, you bring nothing to the table. I don't have any rights. I, I, I don't God, I'm not even going to tell you my side of the story because it doesn't matter. You're king and you're sovereign. Lord, help me. Help me experience you. How long has it been since you've done that? And then I want you to ask yourself, if there's anything in your life you need to repent of now. And if you're like... Everybody else I know, the answer is probably yes. Every one of us has something in here, or if you're more like me, categories of things that you need to repent of. More than just a doctrinal repentance. God, forgive me of this, 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 and this. I know you have because your word says you have. And okay, and then we walk away forgiven, but feeling like we did nothing and still saddled with the guilt and the severed relationship. Or we repent on his terms and we get the same judicial repentance, but what comes with it is a reunification of us and a spirit that lives in us that we have grieved. And if it's true that um, it's been a while since you repented David's way, and if it's true that there are things that you need to repent in your own life, then I would uh, suggest that you do that today. We're not gonna do it in here. I'm gonna pray in just a moment and then Karen's gonna come up and lead us in a song. But while we're praying and while we're singing, I would like you to think of the things in your life that are separating you from God. And I don't care if they're your fault or someone else's fault, or even if you're not even sure. And I want you to think about how that can be restored today. And all you have to do is humble yourself with a broken and contrite heart, And come to him and acknowledge your sin. Not their fault that made you do this, but your sin. And ask him for forgiveness for sinning against him. And then, of course, the people who are suffering because of that sin. And then ask him to restore unto you the joy that may have been missing for a long time because you've held on to your sin rather than embracing what he has for you. And I'm going to ask you if you would, as we're singing a song and praying, if you would ask the Lord to reveal those areas to you. Just pick one. Just one. And then go home and try this. Go home and see if it doesn't bring just a spring in your step and a smile on your face and a, and a deeper desire for more intimacy with him. And if so, you're going to find that you're going to take just more and more things to him this way in a way that he promises he will not despise. And then you can enter into a life of experience with him that maybe it's either been a long time since you've experienced it or maybe you never have before. And it will put, again, a smile on your face. It'll put words in your mouth that you want to share with other people. And you will be be who you've always wanted to be in the Lord and haven't been when we totally just yield it all to him. So let me pray and ask the Lord to show you the repentance you need to do in your own heart.